those are other campuses and our other venues join us, as well as those of you online. I want you guys bow with me and let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, without trying to overstate the case, what we're going to talk about over the next 40 minutes right now from your word is hands down more important than anything we could talk about. God, as you know, it's more important than a pandemic. It's more important than an election. It's more important than any of the problems, very real problems, that any of us bring into this discussion today that are all very real. But Lord, there are things that your word talks about that you want us to talk about, that you want us to focus on, that are core to the matter. They, they are core in what matters most. And Lord, what we're going to talk about today is that. And your son Jesus called it the good news. Uh, your son Jesus came to bring us this news as well as bring us himself and God, we want to talk about this. So I thank you that each of us here and listening today uh, can take 40 minutes out of our very busy lives to pause, to put things aside, and to focus on that which matters most. So give us attentive minds, tender hearts to what you want to say to us now through your word and by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' holy name. We all say together, amen. So when I was in a junior high school, I got myself into a horrible, horrible mess. Not the kind of mess that maybe kids get into today, times have changed, but back then, it was a rather horrible mess. It all started with my paper route. Now, for those of you who are younger, paper route uh, is when you take these things called newspapers, which are these white things that have black and white letters on them, and they read them, and, and you took these papers and you handed them out in the morning to various homes that subscribed to them. In Cleveland, where I grew up, it's the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Ohio's largest newspaper, and I had to get up in junior high every day at 5 a.m walk four blocks across town, which seemed like miles to me, and I would collect 40 newspapers, and I would deliver them between 5 and 6 a.m. on three different blocks in my hometown of Chagrin Falls. Uh, you know, today we have what's called helicopter parents, right, where they kind of, you know, swoop in and, and, and baby their children. Uh, my dad would have best been described as kind of an Army Reserve or National Guard type of parent. In other words, he showed up periodically when you needed him. And uh, he doesn't mind me saying that. He'd agree with that. That's how he thought parenting should be done. So he never rarely drove me on my paper route. It was all me. In fact, he had a rule that if, uh, if it was zero degrees or below, not 32, not below freezing, but zero degrees Fahrenheit, then he would drive me. And he didn't trust the thermometer. He didn't trust me with that. Uh, back then, there was a phone number you could call in the Cleveland area that would give you the precise temperature. And if it was zero or below, he would drive me. And I can remember calling it, and it would say, you know, the temperature is one degree. And I'd go, shoot. And I'd be off, uh, bundled up to go deliver papers in the snow. And I did this paper out for four years. And the math really worked out well to my advantage, especially for a junior high kid in the 1970s. Let me walk you through the math because this is where I got in some trouble. Uh, papers back then, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, cost 15 cents a day for a weekday delivery, six days, Monday through Saturday, and then 50 cents on Sunday for a total of $1.40. And out of that $1.40, the Plain Dealer charged me 11 cents for the 15 cent paper and then 37 
seven cents for the 50 cent paper. So you can do the math for a kid back in the 1970s, I'm making 37 cents profit uh, per week for 40 households. That's almost 15 bucks a week that I was making in profit, which was a lot of money for a kid back then. But I'd have to collect the money. One or two nights a week, I'd have to go out in addition to my morning delivery, and I'd knock on doors, these 40 homes, and I would say $1.40 for the plain dealer. And they would pay me either in cash or a check, and I'd collect all the money. And then once a month, the plain dealer guy would come to my home, we'd sit on my side porch, and I would owe him over $160 of what I collected, and I would get to keep the rest, which was close to $60. Not a bad deal. I'll never forget the plain dealer guy's name. His name was Mr. Gelati. He was this massive Italian guy. Mid-70s, right after the Godfather movie had come out, and you got this big Italian guy coming to collect money. And some of you can see where I got in trouble on one particular month shortly after I got this paper out. <clears throat> I spent all the money that I collected. All of it. You're saying on what? I don't know. I'm a junior high kid. Bubble gum, cards, something. And I spent all the money. And, uh, and, and now Mr. Gelati was coming to, uh, to collect his money that month. And I came up with this wonderful, brilliant idea that I'm convinced came from my sinful, fallen nature. I decided to lie to him. So he came and I said, well, Mr. Gelati, I didn't have any chance to collect money this week or this month. And so I have to get you next month. Some of you still do that in business. Not a good practice to do. And he bought it for that month. He said, okay, Jamie, but next month I'm going to expect double. So he came back the next month and I was not able to collect anywhere near what I needed to pay him because it would take me months to catch up because I had spent an entire month's worth of collections. And I remember sitting there on my side porch just sweating. Again, the big Italian guy coming. I owe him a lot of dough. I don't have it. I got to come clean. And my dad must have saw that. Again, he was not a helicopter parent. He was National Guard. But my dad saw that from inside. And he came out and he said, Jamie, what's going on? Your mother and I see something's wrong. And for whatever reason, I never lied to my dad. My dad was a tough old guy, still is, and he just didn't lie to him or else. And so I started to cry. I came clean. I told him what I had done. And he shook his head and utter disappointment to me. And he walked back inside. And I thought, I'm in trouble. I mean, I got, I got to tell Mr. Gelati what's happening. About three minutes later, he came out with his checkbook in hand. And he said, how much do you owe? And I told him I owed over $300. And my dad, he, I won't even tell you the curse word he used, but he used that word and then used my name, Jamie, after that word. And, 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 and then he wrote the check for the full 300 plus dollars. And I said what many of you would have said to him at that time, what? I said, Dad, I promise I'm gonna pay back everything. And I'll never forget what he did next. He looked at me and he said, no, you won't. He said, it would take you months to earn back this money. And by the time you earned it, you probably would just peter out on your paper out and you'd quit and never wanna do it again. He said, so why don't we just wipe the slate clean you don't owe me anything. And then he looked at me like he always did and said, don't do it again. And he walked back inside. It was an incredible move of grace that my dad gave me that day. 
And for four years, I had that paper route, and I only did it one more time in four years, where I spent too much money and needed him to bail me out. True story. And once again, he came and wrote the check. And so I've said for years that twice in junior high, my dad saved me. He wrote a check that wiped the slate clean. Again, a massive, massive move of grace. And as we define grace today, it fit me in junior high. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. It's doing something for you that you couldn't do yourself and that you didn't deserve. And my dad taught me grace back in junior high. And it's this grace that I want to talk to you about today. We're in a series here that we've called The Questions God Answers. The Questions God Answers. And last week we looked at the answer to the question, what has gone wrong? with all of humanity. This is kind of funny. My wife was on the phone with her uh, sister-in-law, my brother's wife, this week, Monday morning, and she said, yeah, I was listening to Jamie's sermon out for my walk this morning. He says, man, was that ever a downer? She goes, you know, just like, you know, what's gone wrong and all the sin and stuff like that. She goes, I can't wait for part two. And, and guess what? Today we get to part two, and, and we ask and answer the question, what has God done about our problem? What has God done about what has gone so wrong? And as I prayed earlier, the answer is not only encouraging, the Bible actually calls it the good news, it is life-defining and life-altering if you will let it be. And though many of us hearing and listening here today at other campuses or online believe we know the answer to what's gone wrong and, and, and to what God's done about what's gone wrong. We've been in church for years. We've read the Bible. I, I want you to listen to me very closely today because it's uncanny to me after 40 years of being a Christian, 30 years of being a pastor, how many good-hearted Christ followers are not as clear as we could be in answering this very profound question. So let's read the answer as the Bible puts it. And though there are plenty of Bible verses that answer the question, what has God done about our problem? I've chosen a rather straightforward and concise passage today that clearly reveals what God has done. And we're going to park in front of it and use some other passages to add some texture to this, but we're going to park in front of it. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And this is what it says. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, there's a lot going on here, and we're going to unpack this in a glorious way over the next 25, 30 minutes here in a way that you'll be able to explain it to people who might not be in the know, as well as for your own life. But before we start unpacking all the ins and outs of this verse, let me give you a bird's eye view of what this verse is getting at in answering the question, what has God done about what has gone wrong? And here's the bird's eye view. And that is that he's saying what he's done is given us a provision in the person of Jesus. Uh, the provision of Jesus is exactly what this passage is getting at here. What has God done about our problem? He has provided Jesus as the only solution to what ails you and me the most. The provision of Jesus is hands down God's answer to what has gone, or what the answer is to what has gone wrong with humanity's problem, our problem. Now, going deeper and to fully get what Peter is saying here, 
It's important that we begin by understanding that, that, that the backdrop to this passage assumes three things. This is really important. This is review of last week, but it's ironic that this passage we're looking at that we didn't look at last week uh, it has as a backdrop the three things we looked at last week that, that comprise humanity, our greatest problem. And that is that we have a sinful nature that has led to a spiritual death that has led to a separation from God. So I personalize it for you and me today, our sinful nature uh, that leads to our spiritual death, that leads to our separation from God. This is what we looked at last week. And this passage here that we're looking at today assumes this when you look very closely at it. So for instance, when it comes to our sinful nature, this passage says, and we'll see what this means in a minute, that Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. That's Romans 3.23 that we looked at last week that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We simply noted last week that every one of us, I don't care who you are, will have to admit at some point in life that you sin, that you mess up, that you miss the mark, that you don't reach the goal that God has for you. Just the simple Ten Commandments reveal that to us. Most of us don't keep those very well. And again, it's the beginning of God's under, helping us understand what's gone wrong with humanity. We have a sinful nature, and that sinful nature has created a death in our soul that has led to a separation from God. Again, we reviewed this last week, but this passage hints to this, and it's the backdrop of this, because this passage doesn't say that Christ just died for sins, but that he wants then to bring us to God. When it says bring us to God, it assumes that we haven't been brought to God, that we're separated from him. So add it all up. Our sinful nature leading to a spiritual death, leading to separation from God. This is what has gone wrong. It's core to all of humanity's ills, and it's the assumed backdrop of this passage that will now go on to talk very positively about what God has done, about what has gone so wrong. So let's spend the rest of our time now on the positive. And I'm just going to warn you, in Northridge, Chapel, and, uh, and, and Cactus, as we go into this now, just bear with me, because we're going to do some theology work here. But theology is simply the study of God. It's simply understanding who God is. And I need you to put your thinking caps on here, because I'm going to ask you to, to wrestle with some things about what God has done to solve our problem. When you look closely at this passage, 1 Peter 3.18, it's telling us, that three things God has done to solve our problem. The first is that in response to our sinful nature, God has given us Jesus's perfection. We'll see what that means in a minute. But he responded to our sin by sending us someone who is sinless, and we'll see that why that's important in a minute. But before, he then says in this passage that he responded to our spiritual death by Jesus's death. Okay? So he responded to our sinful nature with Jesus' perfection, our spiritual death with Jesus' death. And then, in a glorious way, he responded to our separation from God by bringing us to God. 
So isn't it fascinating that the three things that comprise the core of humanity's problems, God responded to in a tit-for-tat fashion in Jesus. His perfection, his death, and his ability to bring us to God. So let's just unpack this so that we understand clearly what's going on here. Uh, going back to our passage here in 1 Peter 3.18, you'll notice that it says Christ suffered once for sins. Then it says this, the righteous for the unrighteous. Pause in front of that for a second. The righteous for the unrighteous. Obviously, the righteous here is referring to Jesus. <laughs> and don't you love it? The unrighteous refers to, say it with me. Well, you can say us. I meant you. The uh, unrighteous refers to you and me. You're right to us. And so what does it mean, the righteous for the unrighteous? Here's what we understand about this. Jesus, when he came, lived a sinless life. He lived perfectly God's will. I've told you this before, but I thought this was hilarious. Years ago, I was watching The uh, Tonight Show with Jay Leno when he was head of The Tonight Show. And I don't even know why he made this joke, but he was doing his monologue. And at one point he said, I kid you not, he said, can you imagine being Jesus's brother or sister and having your mother look at you and say, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> you know, and then Leno said, you know, well, he's God, mom. I mean, you know, that, that's why. And, and I thought, wow, what a profound thing that, that Jay Leno on The Tonight Show is telling us something very, very wonderful and serious about Jesus. And that is that he indeed lived a perfect life. Now, why is that important? Because he lived the life that God wanted us to live. You see, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he wanted you and I, as humanity, to live perfectly in his presence. And if you know Adam and Eve sinned, got kicked out of the garden, that started the snowball rolling that's affected the rest of us so that none of us live perfectly up to God's will. And as we've seen, that creates death and separates us from him. And so when Jesus came and lived a perfect life as a human being, Theologians call this imputed righteousness. The Bible says that now for those of us who trust him, God credits Jesus' righteousness to us, imputed righteousness. As 2 Corinthians will say, I'll show you this passage here in a minute, we now become the righteousness of God, but not because of our own righteousness, we still don't measure up, but because of what Jesus did for us. We have a sinful nature. He lived a perfect life, and through faith, we appropriate that through God's forgiveness into our lives. But we're not done. Notice then that Jesus responded to our spiritual death with his death. Now, why is that important? Well, Peter says it to us. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. So Link suffered once for sins and being put to death in the flesh. Most of us are familiar with this. Jesus died for our sins. It's core to the gospel. We say it all the time. We teach it to our kids in Sunday school class. In fact, it's so common language among Christians today that I hear it all the time. People say, why Jesus? Well, he died for our sins. Uh, you know, what do you know about Jesus? Well, he died for your sins. And we use it so often that I wonder sometimes if the average Christian today knows what that really means and if some thinking person out there in culture today who's not yet convinced of Jesus were to say, well, why in the world is that important? What does it mean that he died for your sins and why should that matter? And da, da, da. What would the average Christian say today? 
We say it like we know what it means. I'm not sure that we really do. And by the way, I'm not being unfair with you if you're at all hazy on exactly what it means that Jesus died for our sins. Christian theology for 2,000 years have struggled with this. They make a distinction between the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. The person of Jesus, meaning who is he, and the work of Jesus, being what did he come to do. And it's funny, by, by about 430, 425 AD, they had cemented very clearly the person of Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity, God come in flesh, the incarnation, yada, yada, yada. But, but they've still bickered today about exactly what the work of Jesus was and what does it mean when he went to the cross. And, and there's various views on this. I, I want to walk you through a few of the views right now because this is a really important question of what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins and what did he actually accomplish on the cross but one of the prevailing views today that's out there, and we sang about it earlier because obviously it has some truth to it, is that Jesus died to ransom us and declare victory over death and Satan. So people who, who obviously teach this, and I've taught this, I have read Matthew 20, verse 28, where it says that Jesus did not come to, Jesus himself says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The idea being that we're held kind of by the neck by Satan and evil in this world and that when we die, that's it, lights out because of the fall and the curse and that Jesus came to reverse that and to bring us back from death that we might have eternal life and to, to claim us back from Satan so that we might be gods. It's a ransom motif. And many people quote John 3, 16, which you've all heard, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life because he has saved us from death. It's the Easter message. And obviously there's great merit to this view. Jesus did ransom us back from evil and he did defeat death. But what many point out, and this is really important, gang, is that this is not the soul nor the complete picture of how and why Jesus had to die, simply to act as a ransom and defeat death. There's more to it than that. We, we've not gotten to the core yet. So, in tracing that, some have opted for a second explanation, and this is common, especially today, among many more progressive churches, and that's that Jesus died to have love conquer hate and to show us the power of love. So people who believe this, and again, there's great merit to this viewpoint that love is the primary kingdom ethic, that Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor. A new commandment I give you in John 13, to love one another. 1 John 4, 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the greatest of these is love. It's all over the New Testament. And they argue that humanity, even Christians, are not very good at loving, so Jesus came to show us how to love. And he went to the cross to show us what love looks like and to be a moral example for love. They even point to John 15 where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And once again, this view certainly has some merit. Jesus did die to show the power of love. And love is an operative kingdom ethic. And Jesus' death was an example of love. But in the end, I love how Leon Morris, a longtime New Testament scholar who passed away about 15 years ago, said it about these first two options, the ransom motif and the love motif. I love what he said. He said they are inadequate, 
but not untrue. <laughs> Only a scholar could say it that way. And these two views, he says, and many others are inadequate, but not untrue. So essentially what he's saying is, is that they, they hold water. They, they, they have some truth to them, obviously, but they're not the whole story. They're inadequate as an explanation as to the core of why Jesus had to die. Why did he have to die? And that brings us to a third option that, quite frankly, has been under attack today by some more liberal-minded people because we don't like to think of God this way, but I'm going to try to convince you that this is the most, it does the best biblical justice to why Jesus had to die. And it's this, that Jesus died to atone for and forgive our sins through taking our sin upon himself and acting as our substitute. I know that's a mouthful, but just bear with me. Jesus died to atone for and forgive our sins through taking our sin upon himself and acting as our substitute. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement or the satisfaction theory. I like that because it satisfies our core problem between God and man. And simply put, it goes like this. That in addition to meeting all the requirements of God's holy law through his perfect life, Jesus then went to the cross. He died a sinner's death. Now listen, the death that you and I should have died as a penalty for our sin, the death we experience even now a little bit this side of heaven whenever we do sin and it separates us from all those around us, that death, Jesus died and took all of our sin upon himself so that God's wrath would be abated and his forgiveness could become a reality. That's what this view argues. So sin truly does separate us from God, not just leading to death or being held captive by Satan, though it does do that, but actually really separates us from God. Why? Because God is holy and perfect and he abhors sin and he hates it when he sees it in us. Don't miss this. He loves us, but he hates our sin. And what blows me away is how rational thinking people today have trouble with that. Uh, like people actually argue with me today, you know, well, God is God. He shouldn't or couldn't be mad at our sin. He should just let it go, you know, water off a duck's back. I said, go, really? So that's how you think justice should work. Do you do that in your life? <laughs> how about with your kids? Any, any of you here love your kids? Raise your hand if you love your kids. I love my kids. I got a soft spot for them. I, I spoil them. I'm somewhere between that helicopter parent and my dad who's a national guard. I'm kind of halfway in the middle there. And yet when my kids sin, and I mean sin in a pretty significant way, and they have and they do, I don't like it. How about you? I love them. I just don't like what they do. And I think that's actually being a pretty good parent. And there's even times that I get angry at their behavior. Ever gotten angry at your kid's behavior? Where they do it again and again and again and again, and then they don't own it and they don't seek apology. They dig their heels in. I just get angry at that. But again, I love them. It has nothing to do with whether I love them or not. I'm just, I'm angry. Here's my question. If we're made in the image of God, why couldn't God be that way? Why would it seem infantile for God to be angry at humanity because of their grotesque and ongoing sin? That doesn't offend me. I actually understand that. I agree with that. And yet the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus came to deal with this wrath and this sin, not just death and lack of love, but, but this actual sin. And he did so by taking our sin upon himself as the just penalty 
thus satisfying God's just requirements. And more than anything, whether you see the rational side of this or not, and hopefully you do, and I'll apply this to our lives in just a minute here, uh, this is what the Bible says about why Jesus had to die. You be the judge. Here's a few sampling of passages. They're all over the place. I mentioned this passage earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, that's kind of important, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What do you think it means when it says Jesus became sin? Who knew no sin? Because he lived a sinless life. Well, he took our sins upon himself. And then Galatians 3.13 says something similar. It says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the law that we did not hold, by becoming a curse for us. Interesting. And then this verse, 1 John 2.12, uses a $10 theological word that's really not that complicated. It says, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. That sounds like good news. That word propitiation, you can look it up in Webster's Dictionary, simply means to appease, to appease wrath. So, so if you're, again, use the example of your kid, if you're mad at your kid and they go, oh, Daddy, please forgive me, da, 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 you, you start to get appeased, you start to soften toward them. It says that Jesus is the propitiation. He's the one who appeases God. And so what does it mean that Christ suffered once for sins being put to death in the spirit? Don't ever forget this, gang. He atoned for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And the reason that I would submit to you that this is the core understanding of why and how Jesus is the only one that can solve our problem, think about this with me, is that at the end of the day, our biggest problem is not death, though death does stink and scary and all that stuff, but that's not your biggest problem. At the end of the day, your biggest problem is not a lack of love, even though many of you do have a lack of love and need to get more loving. At the end of the day, think about it, our biggest problem between us and God is that we need forgiven by him. And that gap that we feel between him and us, we would like removed. That makes sense to me. When I was 17 years old, just a few years after the paper drive, somebody sat down and explained this gospel to me. And I was stupid as stupid could be. I'd never read the Bible. I didn't go to church but I love how Tom Schrader, my good buddy who died a few years ago, said it. Tom was explaining the gospel when he was 33. And the guy that explained the gospel to him said, Tom, you're a sinner who needs forgiven. And Tom said he had no argument with that because he had 33 years of empirical evidence to back up the sinner claim. And when I was 17 years old, I could tell you the same story. I didn't need to be convinced I'm a sinner. I felt that. I felt the distance from God. And when someone said that my, my biggest need was to be forgiven by him, that just made complete sense. And I received Jesus that year as my Lord and Savior. And we'll talk about what, what that does in just a minute here. Because you see, once you understand that his perfect life is applied to your account and that his death was really here for your sins, meaning forgiveness and atonement as he took your sins upon himself. Then you can see why this makes so, sense, so much sense because then that third component now comes true. He actually can bring you to God. This is the provision of Jesus and it changes everything. Let's go back to my initial illustration. It's God writing a check. 
Picture yourself on that side porch and Mr. Gelati, the devil, is coming for his due. And he wants his money. And you're experiencing that fear and that death because you know that you've messed up. And your father, your loving heavenly father, comes out, pulls out his checkbook and wipes the slate clean. See, that's why that story of grace is so important. Because that's what Jesus has done for you and for me. It's the provision of Jesus. Now, we have just a few minutes left before the communion table. And yet, believe it or not, we're not quite yet to the mountaintop. Many people think that at this point in the discussion, gosh, we've summited the mountain, we're there, it's all about Jesus. Well, it's true, it is all about Jesus. But believe it or not, understanding the provision of Jesus is not the complete answer. There's a second part to it that God is looking for from you and for me, and here it is, and that is what we're going to call the response of faith, or let's personalize it, our response of faith. So the provision of Jesus is solid, written in history, given for you, offered to all of humanity, but watch this. None of it comes true for you. Like a Christmas gift on Christmas Day left unopened, none of it becomes true for you until you respond with faith. That's what the Bible makes really clear. And I'm going to add a little wrinkle to this that the Bible adds that'll be very, very important for many of you who grew up in some traditions that have messed this up. It's a response of faith alone apart from any of your good works. Look at how the Bible could not be more clear in this. Romans 2, 26 and 28, it says, it, meaning the provision of Jesus, was to show his righteousness, again, that, that will be imputed to our account, his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So everything before the yellow is just what we've reviewed, that it's the provision of Jesus, that he wants to justify you before God, so that your sin does not keep you between him and God so that it's forgiven and it comes true for those who have faith in Jesus. But then look at the wrinkle, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So again, God, it's like me on that side porch trying to say to dad, but dad, I'll pay you back for all this. And my dad's saying, no, you can't. God says to you, I don't want your good works yet. <laughs> what I want is your heart. I want you. I want you to trust in and lean on me to believe in what Jesus has done for you. That's it. Look at how uh, the, the book of Romans went on to say, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then if you're not convinced, look at Romans 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And again, some of you are going, well, why is this so important? Because some of you are raised in Christian traditions, whether Catholic or Protestant, whether Orthodox or whatever, in which you were taught, because some churches teach this, that in order to come to Jesus, you better repent of all your sins. That you need to believe in Jesus, yes, but you better change. And you better do this and, and do that. And you better make sure you get your act together or he's not really going to accept you. And when you think about it logically, if we really do need him that badly in order to get our act together, then why would he ask us to get our act together before we come to him? That doesn't make any sense. That'd be my, my dad saying, I want you to get your act together before I'm going to write the check. I would have said even in junior high, well, dad, I already messed that up and I don't have my act together. That's why I need the check. 
And then once he wrote the check, then after he saved me, my dad said what? Don't do it again. And I didn't except one time. And, and so the reality is, but, but that's important. I did do it again. And what did my dad do? He wrote the check again. Could it be that God is the same way toward you? Could it be that Jesus has said, I want you to come to me, trust me, lean on me, receive the gift that I've given to you of the forgiveness of sins. Don't bring all this good work or empty promises. Once you come to me, then we'll get to work on your life. Once you're forgiven, then I'll give you freedom, and then you can start to become a better man or woman. But Christian churches, and some of you have been in them, I have messed this up. We say, no, you got to have faith and do this and do that and promise to do this. And then you'll be saved. That is an abrogation of the gospel. The gospel says it's through faith and faith alone that he receives you. And what is faith? It's simply to believe, but also to lean. I love how John 1.12 would go on to say it. At the beginning of John's gospel, just so people were really clear on this, he said this, but to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood or of the human will or the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we receive, we believe, things having to do with our heart. And that's how, that's how we come home to Jesus. There are some of you here today who have never heard the gospel with this kind of clarity. You've heard the phrases You've heard that you know, he died for our sins and rose from the dead and all these things, but you've never really understood them for you. Today, we're gonna to give you a chance right now to believe and to receive Jesus into your life. I'm gonna pray with you to do that in just a minute. Before I do, I wanna explain how we're gonna finish out our service here today, as well as at Cactus and at Northridge and at Chapel, and for those of you online. We're gonna sing what is one of my new favorite hymns. It's actually written by a British guy and an Irish guy about 15 years ago. And uh, these two hymn writers uh, are just amazing. Townen and Getty are their names. And uh, they wrote a hymn called, Oh to See the Dawn. Some people know it by the power of the cross. And, and if ever a hymn communicated the gospel in all its clarity, this does. And you'll see shades in this hymn as you sing it of the things we've talked about today. It's going to talk about uh, the curtain torn in two and the dead raised to life and Jesus' victory over death, that ransom motif. You're going to hear about love, how he won us through his selfless love and what a love. You're going to hear those things. But most importantly in this hymn, as we sing it, you're going to hear this. Tis the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame and bore the wrath. We now stand forgiven at the cross, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. We stand forgiven at the cross. It's a gritty, beautiful hymn that declares the gospel. And for those of you who believe, sing this with everything in you. And for those of you who are gonna believe right now, and come home to Jesus, sing this for the very first time, declaring your newfound faith. So as we get ready for the communion elements to be passed out here and at other campuses, uh, why don't you guys bow with me right now, and we're gonna pray, and then our other campus pastors are gonna come up and lead us in communion. 
God, our gracious, merciful, heavenly Father, I thank you that in history past, but so relevant today, you sent Jesus for us. And Lord, you sent Jesus to be the life we couldn't live, to die the death we should have died, to bridge the gap we couldn't bridge. <laughs> and I'm so grateful you did. And I thank you, Lord, that this is such a simple, pure gospel that 30 plus years ago, a 17-year-old kid who never went to church could understand this and receive Jesus. And Father, if I don't miss my guess, there might be some today who, who for the very first time have heard this gospel. And Lord, like myself and my friend Tom, they need no convincing they're a sinner. They got empirical evidence to back that up. But they also now are ready to receive Jesus. So Lord, right where they sit, they pray with me this prayer. Oh, dear God, thank you that you love me, that even in the midst of my sin and at times your anger, you care for me. And thank you that you sent Jesus for me. Thank you that he bore my sin. Thank you that he is the one who paved the way for the forgiveness of my sin. And I now, Lord, believe in him. I receive him into my life as my Lord and my Savior, as the only one who can save me and write the check that I need written. Thank you that you love me. Thank you for Jesus and the salvation he gives me. Father, I pray for any of us who have prayed that prayer here today that we might know right now that we have crossed over, as the Bible says, from death to life, from having no hope to having hope eternal. And that, Lord, you now are ours and we are yours, never ever to be taken away. And God, I pray that as we all now worship you and sing the song in preparation for the, the holy elements to be passed out, I pray, God, that we might declare your gospel and with one voice and one heart believe in you. God, I started our time together by saying this is more important than any pandemic or election or anything we might bring into this room or the rooms that we're in. And it truly is, God. This is do or die time when it comes to us and you. And we thank you that you've called us to do <laughs> as we trust in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name and we all say together, amen.